reading tonight from Joel, and after which uh, John is going to come and bring us an explanation of the word. Thank you. Good evening. You can find today's passage on page 915 of the Church Bibles, Joel chapter 3, starting from verse 17. That's Joel chapter 3, from verse 17 on page 915. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine, and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate, Edom a desert waste, because of violence done to the people of Judah, in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem through all generations. Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. This is God's word. Good evening. It would be really helpful if you can keep that passage open as we look at it now. Let's uh, pray together. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Father, we thank you for your life-giving words, and we ask that you would speak your word into all our hearts and minds now. Help us to see the joy of what is to come in the future, the blessings you give us, your goodness to us. And may we particularly see Jesus as he truly is. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want you to think of a, a day that you've looked forward to or a day that you longed for. Uh, maybe it was a, a birthday or the beginning of a holiday, maybe a wedding day or the start of your retirement. Now, these days are days of happiness and joy, a great fun to be had with our friends and family. But they are days that don't last. Uh, when over, you've got to wait another 365 days for your next birthday. Uh, before you even know it, you're off the plane, back in the office and at your desk. The honeymoon period is over way too quickly, and now it feels that you're busier in retirement, in retirement than you've ever been. You see, as good as these days are, they come and they go. But there is a day that will come, and when it does, it will last forever. And this is the day of the Lord. And for believers in Jesus Christ, this is a day to look forward to and to long for. Now, before we see why that's the case, because this final passage helps us see that, I want to briefly just go over the things that we have seen in Joel 
already. Just maybe it's a refresher for some of us. Maybe we're coming to this for the first time. So on the screen behind me will come up an overview, and I will get out of the way of it and try and explain uh, the overview of Joel. So if we look at the top left, chapter 1, we, we, we learnt about the locusts that had devastated Judah. They stripped the vegetation of the land. And this called Judah to lament, to mourn, to grieve when such disasters happened. Uh, but this disaster, it was, it was used as a picture by, by Joel to speak of the day of the Lord, the day that would come in the future when Jesus returns. And this day then called for people to rend their hearts, to return back to God. And also in chapter 2, we see two promises, perhaps an immediate one for uh, Judah, which was the restoration of what the locusts had destroyed. And then a future promise of the Holy Spirit that we see at Pentecost, which is good news because it means salvation for God's people. And all this points us to the day of the Lord, which starts in chapter 3. And then we get two ways. God judging the nations, which leads to eternal desolation. And then also salvation for God's people, where they will be in the land of eternal plenty. And we're particularly thinking about that green box this evening. Uh, now, we know from the beginning of chapter 3 that we are looking at the events of the last days when Jesus returns, because in verse 1 of chapter 3, God says, in those days and at that time. It's a phrase often used by the prophets to speak of the day of the Lord. Uh, we have something similar in our passage in verse 18, which says, in that day. So the events of chapter 3, very clearly, are what will transpire when the final day comes. Now, last week, Fred, he helped us look through that first part of that chapter where the Lord said that he will gather all the nations to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That is the valley where the Lord judges, the valley of decision. He will put them on trial and punish them for their treatment of his people. But while the wicked will face judgment, the Lord will be a refuge for his people. And verse 17, it links back to those first 16 verses. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. See, God's judgment on the nations reassures his people that he is with them. He's an eternal resident and refuge who blesses his people from his holy dwelling. And so for the faithful, the day of the Lord is not to be feared, but to be looked forward to and longed for. For this is when the Lord will bring in his new creation and lavish his people with his wonderful blessings. Now these blessings are laid out before us in these final verses, and uh, we're going to look at them now. And so the first is this. We have the blessing of a holy city. We have the blessing of a holy city. Look down again with me at verse 17. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. You see, Jerusalem, it was meant to be 
a city like no other. It was meant to be holy, distinctive, set apart, a contrast to the foreign cities that were rife with immorality and idolatry. But in reality, Jerusalem failed in this calling. In verse 17, we have the first mention of holiness in Joel, which kind of infers that in his time, the city was anything but holy. Even in Jesus' day, when he approached the city, he wept over it. Today, many people call Jerusalem the holy city, thinking it's one of the holiest places on earth. But it isn't holy, certainly not how the Bible understands holiness. But in these uh, final words from Joel, God promises Jerusalem will be holy. But this goes beyond the earthly city that's around 2,200 miles away. God promises a new city, a new Jerusalem. And this will come when the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, the Apostle John sees this city in his heavenly vision. In Revelation 21, verse 2, he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And John goes on to describe this city in all its sort of structural splendor, from jasper, gold, glass, to every kind of precious stone. But the new Jerusalem is picture language describing God's people. This holy city is the sanctified people of God who are set apart for his glory. And Joel points us to that city, specifically emphasizing the blessing of God's protection. Verse 17, never again will foreigners invade her. And no doubt this was reassuring uh, to the Jews who had locusts and warring nations on their minds. But the new Jerusalem is of a heavenly nature. And the protection God gives covers the spiritual. Holiness is about being free from sin. And God promises that no spiritual invader will breach his city. Now, I googled to find what was the cleanest city in the world. The result I found was Copenhagen, uh, which was voted most livable city four years in a row. Also named one of the safest as well. But of course, no matter how clean or safe it is, you can never call it holy. For a city is more about its people than its buildings. Because people have impure hearts. That was the problem for Jerusalem, just as it is for any other city or dwelling. But God promises that nothing unclean will invade his city. Further on in Revelation 21, we read this in verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, the new Jerusalem, it will be protected, and it's only through the Lamb that this is possible. It is through his death that Jesus takes away the sin of the world. Uh, We were thinking this morning about that idea of redemption. Uh, With redemption, the presence of sin is gone. The Lamb takes away the sin of the world, removing sin forever. 
And so this holy city will never be invaded by any impure or immoral force ever again. Now we have enough experience living in a fallen world to know that uh, the absence of sin, it just sounds remarkable and wonderful. No more immorality, no more sin. It is wonderful to hear. And God promises that we will be that city as his people. Fully protected and never invaded. And that's certainly something to look forward to and to long for. So that is the first blessing we see, a holy city. Here's the second blessing. The blessing of a plentiful land. Look with me at verse 18. In that day the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. Now it's hard to um, visualize what the day of plenty will look like. I mean, my idea of plenty is having a, a, a mound of roast or Christmas dinner on my plate. But for the farming-dependent Jews, plenty is expressed by the abundance of wine, milk, and water. Uh, and one commentator puts it this way. Uh, the wine will be sweet, not bitter, and it will simply ooze out of the grapes as though the mountain slopes with their vineyards were dripping, making viniculture unnecessary, wine presses an anachronism, and vats superfluous. The cattle will be in such fine fettle that the milk will be positively flow from their udders. No need for them to be milked. Instead of rain running from the hills, they will seem to flow with milk. Water will rush down the riverbeds, and if that is not enough, a spring will emerge to bring water to the valleys. Now, no doubt this would have been music to the ears of the Judeans. But this picture of superabundance exceeds God's restorative work after the locust plagues in chapter 2. Nothing anyone has experienced, even in the most peaceful days of God's blessing can begin to compare with what will be available to his people on that day. For this is the new creation, the land of plenty. And the symbolism of these provisions gives us deeper understanding of these future blessings. You see, no doubt such abundance of wine will bring to mind uh, Jesus' miracle at Cana where he turned water into wine. In the Bible, wine symbolizes joy. And whether we see it from what Jesus did or what Joel says, such plenteous wine means the day of the Lord will be an eternity of joyful celebration for God's people. At milk is tied to God's covenant blessing. Remember, God promised to guide his people to a land filled with milk and honey. And so this would have reminded the Jews of God's faithfulness. But milk is also a symbol of fertility. The promised land had originally been a land filled with milk and honey. But years of famine, war and plagues had ravaged it. But this new land will no longer face such devastation. And this implies that the curse pronounced by God after the disobedience from Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 will be lifted. Never again will the land be under such torment. It will be free to be eternally verdant and plentiful. 
And as for water, well, water is used in the various ways in the Bible, but here it symbolizes life. This picture here is of ravines being filled up to form rivers and lakes, places that sustain life. You know, it makes me think of those um, nature programs with David Attenborough. Uh, You know, it's Africa, it's the dry season, uh, there's no water, no vegetation, animals are barely alive, they're just about surviving, and, you know, there was always that sort of pull-on-the-heartstring moment where you get that poor little baby elephant all on their own trying to keep up with the herd. It's enough to make most of us cry. But then the next shot is of the dark clouds and the thunder. Rain pours down from the heavens, filling the ravines, giving life to all who live nearby. And as wonderful a picture as that is, the new creation will be better because there will be no dry season. God will forever water the earth. For he is the source of all of this super abundance. The Lord is the fount of living water. And it is from his holy dwelling that water flows and gives life. As God's son, Jesus, offered living water to the Samaritan woman in John 4. This is water where you will never go thirsty again. Eternal satisfaction in the land of plenty. This is what the Lord will give to all who trust in him. Again, this is something to look forward to, something to long for as his people. And here's the final promise. We have the promise of an eternal nation. Uh, Look down at verse 19. But Egypt will be desolate, Edom a desert waste, because of violence done to the people of Judah in uh, in whose land they shed innocent blood. Now, by contrast to the verdant, abundant paradise that awaits God's people, the nations will face desolation. In Tolkien's Middle Earth, there is an area known as the Desolation of Moranon. And it's vividly described to us as Frodo, Sam and Gollum leave behind the dead marshes and head towards the Black Gate of Mordor. Um, In the chapter, there's an excerpt. Let me just read this, and it will just give you that vivid description. Frodo looked round in horror. Dreadful as the dead marshes had been, and the arid moors of the no-man lands, more loathsome far was the country that the, the crawling day now slowly unveiled to his shrinking eyes. Even to the mere of dead faces, some haggard phantom of green spring would come, but here neither spring nor summer would ever come again. Here nothing lived, not even the leprous growths that feed on rottenness. The gasping pools were choked with ash and crawling muds, sickly white and grey, as if the mountains had vomited the filth of their entrails upon the lands about. High mounds of crushed and powdered rock, great cones of earth fired, blasted and poison-stained, stood like an obscene graveyard in endless rows, slowly revealed in the reluctant light. They had come to the desolation that lay before Mordor. Now, no doubt Tolkien had in mind his experience of the Somme and its desolation when he wrote those words. 
But this powerful imagery helps us visualize the fate of the nations. They will become a desolate wasteland, a desert. And two nations are specifically mentioned here, Edom and Egypt. Both nations have a long history of hostility towards God's people. And they are charged with violence against Israel in Israel. And their sentence will be destruction, devastation, and depopulation. And this was good news for the Judeans, knowing the nation's crimes would not go unpunished. But as this judgment falls on the last day, we should also view Edom and Egypt with a future perspective. Uh, Just as the Bible uses Babylon as a picture to describe specific worldly power, it does so again here with these two nations. Egypt stands for worldly power that attempts to uh, exterminate God's people. And Edom stands for the incessant hatred and hostility between the world and God's people. But God's judgment will fall on these worldly powers And they will never affect God's people ever again. And where Egypt and Eden will be forever desolate, Judah will be an eternal nation. Verse 20 says, Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem through all generations. And once again, we we must understand this with a future perspective. We're not talking about the earthly kingdom of Judah because that kingdom fell centuries ago. Judah here represents God's eternal nation, a nation that is made up of all kinds of people from different nations. This is a nation that will be an eternal dwelling, inhabited forever, and that is Christ's eternal church. You see, this picture is of a heavenly Jerusalem, a heavenly city and temple together in eternity. The city is the people and Christ is the temple. And they will dwell together forever. That is God's promise to us. And the Lord's going to do all this. He will do all this because he must see justice done. Verse 21 says, Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. Another Bible version renders it this verse, I will avenge their blood that I have not avenged. You see, in his justice, God will defend the innocent and punish the guilty. Now, innocent here does not mean those without sin. This is those who are undeserving of the terrible treatment inflicted out by the wicked. And God makes it plain that however long it takes, he will see to it that the guilty are punished for their acts of violence, especially those against his people. Nobody but nobody gets away with anything. God sees all, knows all, and will judge all. And when we understand this about God's judgment... We should give thanks for his justice. We should give thanks. But we should also be patient for him to execute it. 
and be dissuaded from seeking vengeance ourselves. Now, the confidence that we have that all these promises will be fulfilled comes from the sort of bookends of the passage. So you'll see in verse 17 and 21, we are reminded that the Lord dwells in Zion. And this is the comfort that the Lord is near and personal. He is with us. As I said earlier, he's an eternal resident and refuge who blesses his people from his holy dwelling. And this goes beyond living with, uh, within the house of God on top of the temple mount. Because God lives in us by his spirit, helping us and guiding us to that final day. But he is also enthroned in the heavenly Zion. And from his dwelling place, he will bring eternal judgment and blessing upon his creation. And so, in light of all of this, look forward and long for that day. Knowing that on that day, God's justice will be done and his blessing will be known. So he will make us a holy city, completely free from sin. He will give us a plentiful land, everlasting provisions. And we will be an eternal nation, dwelling with each other and our great God forever. Let's pray. then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion. Our Father God, we thank you for your goodness to us, for your blessings upon us. And we look forward to that day when Jesus will come again and the blessings that you will bestow on your people. We look forward to enjoying them together with you. But we thank you too, Lord, that that day will be a day of justice where you will judge those who have wronged your people. So help us, Lord, to look forward to that day, to long for that day to come and help us live in these days so that we might be ready for when Jesus comes again. And we pray that in his name. Amen.